Uh, we're here tonight to discuss Alan Phil's book, Tough Customer, uh, with a splendid cover, uh, suggesting that perhaps the uh, title could also have been Trouble at the BP Corral. <laughs> uh, Alan is, uh, is, of course, uh, best known for his role at the ACCC, but the book covers a surprising number of themes. Now, Alan, do you want to give us a one-minute encapsulation of what's in here? I've spent my life as a lecturer. It takes 50 minutes to impart one <laughs> unit of knowledge, but I'll do my best. Um, so it's since the ACCC, and it covers a few fields, mental illness. My daughter has schizophrenia. I'll talk about that, but also about mental health policy. Then um, about 7-Eleven and underpaid workers. Um, I was in charge of fixing that up and I got sacked by 7-Eleven, which made me a bit of a national hero. It was the best sacking I've ever had. And the government asked me to report on the problem generally through the Migrant Worker Task Force and what to do about underpaid workers. Then taxis. Uh, I did a big study on that and I've been associated a bit with Uber. Then uh, I was on a study on executive overpay what should be done about it, and we brought in the two strikes rule. And I've also talked about the Banking Royal Commission. Um, I also, after I left the ACCC, became chair, uh, I became dean of the Australia and New Zealand School of Government, which trains high-level public servants. So I talk a bit about its work, and also uh, I have been doing training programs for no one less than senior members of the Chinese Communist Party as an outcome of that. Happy to talk about it. I couldn't stop myself saying a few things about competition law. Um, so it's things I've done since the ACCC. I happened to somewhat unfortunately run into a very experienced editor when I was travelling overseas. And um, after I'd given a similar account, um, she said, you cannot write a book without drawing conclusions. Uh, so I've got in a few fairly heavy-handed and ponderous conclusions. Um, I've also tried to um, say one or two amusing things as I went along. Um, I used to think I was very witty because when I was chairman of the ACCC and I told a joke, all the businesses and that, they'd be uproar, <laughs> hilarious. Uh, you know, response. Then I noticed after I left that that didn't happen. So I was going to put in icons, you know, uh, this icon, this is meant to be funny, and another icon, this is a serious bit, and another icon, uh, I'd like to say more, but I have to be a little bit careful what I say here. Um, I do know a friend who wrote a book just like that, but I reluctantly decided not to put in these icons. So uh, that was 100% more than, uh, than, than I'd hoped for. Thank yeah. you very much for the, uh, the two-minute encapsulation. And uh, you've really, uh, I think, illustrated for the audience so much how your book has that Zelig-like quality. Of, you've seemed to have been there for so many important developments in public policy. Uh, let's go roughly chronologically through your career and starting with the ACCC. You use the, the courts and the media very extensively. Uh, let's start with the courts. Uh, you, you're very strong with, uh, on the notion that 
uh, it is important to litigate rather than simply obtain enforceable undertakings from firms. Why is that? Um, well, enforceable undertakings, it sounds a really substantial and serious thing, but it's not a court, court verdict or a legal thing. Uh, all that happens is that the regulator goes to someone who's breaking the law and says, would you sign an agreement with me, an undertaking, and then we won't go to court, we'll do nothing more about it. Uh, of course, if you decide not to comply with the undertaking, with the promises that you've given, we, the ACCC, the regulator, can go to court and get that undertaking enforced um, without fines or penalties. So it's quite a uh, weak thing. It is useful if you're doing all the other things as well. Then it is handy to have that power. But unfortunately, it's been heavily used as a substitute for real action. The fact is that Parliament enacts a law, they say certain behaviour is illegal and you should be fined or jailed or whatever. The, the regulator, they're just police. Their job is, if they have the evidence, take people to court and get proper sanctions applied. It's not their job to ignore all that and do a cosy little deal and it means also they are very ineffective uh, and we've seen Hain has condemned that with ASIC but there are many other regulators that uh, do the same. You uh, say in the book uh, that uh, you were once described by Terry McCran as being a media tart, uh, uh, response to, in response to which you immediately called a press conference. Uh, and you were an, an extraordinarily present figure there as head of the ACCC. What was the value of the media for you? Well, um, I'll just go back to your opening, which was a good one, because the two are linked. That is, you have to take some action to get media. I've seen a lot of regulators doing nothing call media conferences, and the media doesn't report them. So uh, the, the impact of the media is very great. Now, first of all, it's educational. Everyone gets to hear about the case they learn from a business, uh, consumers, others. That's a form of accountability that people know you're doing the job you're expected to. But it's also a very important instrument of power. It gives you a lot of power. Now, on the whole, the media is supportive in Australia of regulators who do their job, by and large. Um, regulators often are very shy about using the media or frightened, or they have... Unjustified uh, fears that there could be bad legal, legal repercussions. Normally, there aren't. So uh, it gives you a tremendous amount of power. It has a very big impact on businesses that are dealing with you. They are much more worried about complying with the law, doing what you want. Uh, and also, it has a big effect on politicians. They treat you with much more care and respect, and um, so, uh, you know, politicians often try and bully you into something or other, but if they know that you've got the media there that you can go to, uh, I find they take a lot more notice of you. So, very important instrument of power.
And in response to your use of the courts and media, uh, you developed no shortage of enemies, uh, having been attacked by everyone from Don Bradman down. Uh, how do you, firstly, tell us about the Bradman attack? Secondly, how do you develop a, a thick skin so you don't feel you need to pull the dinner over the head every night? So Don Bradman became a stockbroker and he strongly condemned one of my earliest decisions in 1973. I was a little bit upset about that. Um, I did have his autograph that I obtained in 1952, <laughs> and that made it just worse. But he was just a reactionary stockbroker. Now, on... Um, so... Um, what was the other bit of it? Well, how do you develop a, th oh, a yeah, sufficiently thick skin? So, um, look, um, I'm sure all of you have heard of KPIs. So the KPI of a good regulator should be the number of complaints made <laughs> against them. Um, so normally uh, complaints, you know, they've got a positive aspect to them. That's how I see it. And indeed, the very first time or two that I was criticised, I was a little bit upset personally, but then I'd go out into the street and I'd find that a bank having attacked you turns you into a national hero. <laughs> People think you're wonderful. They come up and congratulate you. So... I'm still dreaming of being, you know, attacked by people like that. Um, <laughs> now, it doesn't worry me. Now, I did talk to uh, uh, a colleague of mine, actually, I think it was David Kemp, uh, and he was saying to me, well, uh, if, if you can get everyone attacking you, that would indicate you're probably doing the right thing. Um, now, with the regulator, on the whole you get a very narrow set of people attacking you, and then the public tends to support you. You've uh, written about the complexity of the Australian Act that you had the job of enforcing, uh, about the fact that it is many times longer than many other acts and around the world, including the Chinese one or the uh, European one or the American one, uh, and said that it's 20,000 words could be summed up in two lines, any behaviour that substantially lessens competition is prohibited unless it can be demonstrated by authorisation process to be in the public interest. So how did our act get so complicated? Is it just a problem of that we let lawyers into it rather than letting the economists do that? Uh, yes, that was such a case. And um, the American Act, the Sherman Act on which it's based, is in fact uh, just two or three lines. Mm. Um, now, the lawyers did not trust anyone, including the judges, to get what competition law was about. So they wrote in, in great deal of detail uh, what is unlawful, but it's really, for the most part, made things worse because the core issue is whether the behaviour harms competition and harms the public. Um, but before you reach that conclusion in the Australian Act, you have to spend hours, days, months in court, seeing if the behaviour conforms with the specifications. Mm. So you spend all your time on the wrong issues and then just at the end of the day you actually go on and ask the competition question. So it's a huge distraction. It also makes the act quite hard to explain to anyone. Uh, we could get it down to a few lines. Mm. Do you think we ever will? Uh, I think we will get it heavily shortened, uh, 
Harper review of competition made a very, very gentle start on it. Um, there are still huge pages that could just go. For example, in every country in the world, there's a prohibition on so-called resale price maintenance. Now, everyone in the game knows what that is. But in Australia, there is a 10-page expansion of what it's all about. And it does have the unintended effect of catching some things which really shouldn't be in there and leaving out a few things they didn't think of. So that bit could all go, just say RPM's prohibited. Um, the exclusive dealing section 47 is about four or five pages. That could go down to a couple of lines. Um, and then there, there are a lot of other bits that could go. So I think, on the whole, I think people will come to this because it's not a really serious or substantial change. The legal profession likes it, but big business, I th they've always opposed change to this law, but it's not a terribly substantial change. There are some other bigger things that would upset them. And I would suggest that they save up their energy for that. So on the to-do list of uh, uh, productivity reformers in the 1990s were taxis, news agencies and pharmacies. Uh, you got to tackle taxis just before the entry of Uber for the Victorian government. Tell us about that experience. So, in fact, uh, I did four official reports before that which got nowhere. And I just took the one-line simple economics approach the whole problem is unnecessary licensing restrictions um, and you should get rid of the unnecessary element of the restrictions and minimise the requirements for someone to have a licence. It got nowhere politically. Then in 2011, the Victorian government um, said, have a go, but this time you've got to get it through politically. And so I came up with a compromise. Say you'd just removed all the licensing restrictions, licence values would have fallen from $525,000 per licence to nil, and that wasn't on politically. And by the way, there's no talk of compensation. So I came up with a sort of formula which halved it, but which also... Um, had the effect of breaking the political back of the seemingly invulnerable taxi lobby. So when Uber came along a bit later, um, the scene was set to make it easy to get at them. The lesson for economists, incidentally, was that, going back to the My Taxi report, the public's not terribly interested in licences and whether they're a good or bad thing. So I didn't talk about that hardly at all, even though it was my big target. So it was the quality of service, the badness of the drivers. Uh, there's this um, story that um, someone was desperate to get to Melbourne Airport with a taxi, so taxi didn't know where Melbourne Airport was, so he jumped in the driver's seat and drove the taxi <laughs> to the <laughs> Melbourne Airport. Um, so I attacked the quality of the service the public was getting and then I went into a whole lot of details, the bad deal that people with a disability got, um, the hopelessness of the safety precautions, you know, they 
justified licences on a safety basis. There is no solid justification. And those sort of things had more appeal to the public. Also, it was an interesting inquiry. I've been on a lot of inquiries. Most of them you just sit there and do sort of an impartial, independent inquiry. To me, uh, I knew the broad answer I wanted and I used it to advance the political cause, to run a bit of a crusade mm -hmm. alongside the inquiry. We, uh, we've seen technology uh, deal with a range of these, uh, these issues that were raised in the 1990s. Uber with the uh, taxi monopoly, uh, the iPad uh, arguably with the news, news, news agents' uh, control. Do you think technology will also uh, break the power of, uh, of, of, pharma of pharmacies, uh, potentially through secured vending machines? It's, it's on the way. Uh, I could imagine that happening. I must say their grip is pretty strong in the pharmacies and I notice, I think the government has just said we'll give you another five years with all the restrictions. Um, I don't think the public feels terribly strongly about the issue against what the pharmacies do. Um, I think I'm possibly sitting on the fence and of course with another hat on at the ACCC we've always been worried about internet availability of medicines and so on. There is a quite a large part of the Australian population unfortunately buys uh, magic cures for cancer and all sorts of things on the internet. Um, and the ACCC does what it can about it, but the, there are quite a few risks in selling medicines online or even through machines. There might be, vending machines might be, might be it. I, I do think, incidentally, when you go to the pharmacists, they have stepped up the advice they give you an enormous amount. Personally, I don't find it terribly useful, uh, but they're trying to associate their monopoly over the selling of medicines with the need for advice about them. Let's move on to CEO pay. Uh, last week, the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors brought out its latest reports. It looked at the 100, top 100 ASX CEOs and found that uh, of those eligible for a bonus, only one had missed out. Uh, why is it that CEO pay has been going up at a time at which trust in big business has been going down? Weak, poor governance by boards. Um, there's an American study from Harvard, uh, performance, pay without performance, that sets out in some detail what has gone wrong with governance there. It's worse than in Australia. But nevertheless, the boards are too close to the CEOs. The CEOs have too much influence on the boards. That has been the key reason uh, for the rapid escalation in executive pay. Uh, some of the biggest payers at the, uh, at the banks, and you've got some fairly uh, harsh words about the Hain Royal Commission. You think it should have recommended vertical separation. Uh, tell Correct. us about that. So um, I, the coalition has quite a long history of making extremely conservative judicial appointments to royal commissions. We had Justice Hayden did the unions. Dawson, fine judge, but extraordinarily conservative, did competition. 
and then Hain was given the Royal Commission job. And I was quite surprised at the strength of his condemnation of the banks in the interim report. Uh, and it just started to make me think, well, maybe he will come up with a non-conservative uh, report. But in fact, the recommendations are rather conservative. They are essentially that the regulators should do their job better, um, they should go to court more. Incidentally, he um, glossed over the fact that the courts themselves have been part of the problem. It is quite difficult to get verdicts under the corporation's law and the courts have not been out there in front helping ASIC get results. But his answers were stronger enforcement of the law plus change the bank culture and the government do a few little things to encourage change. That doesn't address the fundamental problems. Uh, and also it was a lawyer's royal commission, deliberately. So a number of policy recommendations he made weren't well thought through. For example, about mortgage brokers. That was knocked over in a couple of days, that one. Uh, it wasn't a policy-making royal commission. So what I think was wrong with it was it didn't address some key problems. Firstly, the one you've mentioned, the vertical separation, that is the financial institutions on the one hand go out there and offer you impartial, independent advice on how to spend your money, how to save, etc., and invest. And on the other hand, they have their own products which they're constantly spruiking. And the data shows that 75-80% of the, their advice is followed by you purchasing their products even if they're inferior. So there is a fundamental conflict there and the only way of dealing with it is stop the banks, the financial institutions from having both roles. Uh, the second thing was remuneration. There are deep conflicts between the way people are paid in the financial institution sector that cause them to put their interests rather than the interests of the customer first and no sensible, plausible, important recommendations were made to address that. Thirdly, the banks have quite a bad record on remediation. That is, when they've done something wrong, making up the pay. They take making up the lost money. It takes a long time, it's very legalistic, self-serving, not very transparent, and um, something much more substantial was needed on that. So, uh, and, and then I didn't find the steps taken, you know, about telling ASIC to run more cases, all that convincing. Um, another aspect is that the banks and the financial institutions are amongst the most powerful lobbies there are in Australia. And over the next few years, they'll lift their game a bit, but... Um, they, um, they, they'll lift their game a bit, but uh, I think already you can see the financial lobbies doing everything to undermine the more serious recommendations. Yes, and the discussion about culture reminded me of that uh, Barrow line about productivity, that every discussion about productivity ultimately dissolves into a discussion of amateur sociology. 
I'm not sure how effective policymakers or economists are at getting in the black box of culture. Um, but I want to take you on to 7-Eleven, uh, looking at the, the other end of the wage spectrum from CEO pay. And uh, uh, in one instance, you, unco you talked about a 7-Eleven employee who was getting just 47 cents an hour. Uh, the, uh, you point out that the franchise agreement in Australia is different from the United States. Uh, in the US, head office keeps 50%. Here, they keep 57%. What else do you think was going on that drove the, uh, the, the scandals, not just in 7-Eleven, but as you point out, in places like uh, Domino's and Donut King? Well, I suppose there are many answers to that, but the key one is that uh, once everyone starts... To, once it spreads and nothing is done, then everyone else decides to do it. So there's just a very widespread culture now of underpayment of migrant workers and many Australian workers. And also, that means the policy problem is a lot more difficult. If there's just underpayment in one firm or something, send in the regulator, they'll fix it. But when every, not every business, but numerous businesses are doing it, it is very difficult to, con to apply conventional law enforcement. And also, this is the Fair Work Ombudsman. By the way, that's a funny name. Uh, you know, that sounds very friendly, you know, come and have a chat about it. They're meant to be the police. Uh, I'd prefer them to be called the Fair Work Enforcement Agency or something like that. So it was the spread of the culture that I saw as, um, you know, the really big problem. But there are many other aspects, the incentives of the franchisors to screw the franchisees who then have to underpay. The franchisees have their own incentives. The students and other migrant workers also are happy to take any pay rather than nil. Um, this is an interesting issue in framing. So do you frame it as these foreign students breaking our law? No. These little shops, they're all terrible. No, it's the franchisor. No, it's weak enforcement of law. No, it's the minimum wage. No, it's our immigration. No, it's us greedy consumers and competition. Tell us about how they sacked you. Well, um, the, uh, what, what actually happened was that I uh, had a shot at them on Four Corners and the following day, uh, Russell Withers, the owner, chairman, everything, called me and said, we really want to fix this up. Bad for our reputation. Would you come in and make up for the lost pay? And I sensed that he didn't think there was much to the job or much money involved. Um, actually, I had talked to the Four Corners reporter, Adele Ferguson, who's just great on all of these things. And she had said to me, this is really widespread, this stuff. Same as she said about the banks. And so uh, it turned out she was right. And we got going on it. And um, we uh, made decisions which... Uh, gave them, we, we sent them a first bill for 40 million and they suddenly realised this was serious um, and of course I'm completely naive as you know and I thought they wanted me to do the job properly. Um, I was assisted by uh, Deloitte so it wasn't as if I was being arbitrary or anything. It was fairly clear these were the right repayments and then it soon became obvious to 7-Eleven that just dealing with the ones I'd rounded up 
was going to cost 160 million. It did cost 160 million. That's what they paid. And also, uh, initially, the migrant workers were too scared to come forward because they thought they'd lose their visa. But uh, they developed confidence in us. Also, we reached out to them through social media, and that further enhanced their knowledge and understanding and everything. And there were more and more coming in. Had we stayed, the payout would have been a lot more. So um, in a few words, they sacked me. Uh, they found a couple of other reasons. The main reason, I mean, I've been sacked for stupidity, incompetence, delay. Mm, I don't think I'll go through the whole lot. A lot. But um, this was the best sacking. They said... Congratulations, you've done an inspiring job. We've learnt so much from you. Um, we'll sack you, we'll do it from here on. Uh, so that was the rationale. Uh, I want to uh, skip over China and perhaps we'll get a question on, uh, on your, your work in China because you open the book with uh, the issue of mental illness, yep. uh, which you are only working on, as I understand it, because of your daughter, Isabella. Correct. So tell us about Isabella's journey. So she had um, a very difficult childhood. Uh, we thought she was destined for men mental illness, uh, but we couldn't really get any professionals to agree with that or give a diagnosis. At the age of 25, she had her first really serious psychotic attack, uh, hallucinations, delusions, voices in her head shouting at her, telling her to do things, to throw herself out the window, to throw herself down the stairs, all sorts of things that happen in a person's head. Schizophrenia generally is a genetic biological type illness um, and it just happens to about one and a half percent of the population in every country, and there's somewhat similar things with other forms of psychotic mental illness. So uh, she then, um, after being diagnosed, she went on to some medicine. Medicine's very imperfect. It suppresses the really terrible symptoms, but has side effects and doesn't really cure things. So she's quite obsessive. Um, now, 10 years later, she had to have a change of medicine because of some bad side effects, but the change of medicine went badly and she had an even worse psychosis and uh, she spent about six weeks in hospital. Every medicine known as child didn't work, so she had to have the ultimate solution, which is uh, electronic convulsive therapy, ECT, I'd seen a couple of films about it. One flew over the cuckoo's nest and also uh, Family Life, Ken Loach. And I just always thought these things were terrible. In fact, they are used and they do have an effect, uh, a good effect, uh, mostly with quite minor side effects on memory. And the side effects on her are quite small. Um, and it snapped her out of it. Now, um, I then... Um, so she lives to this day. So I was concerned about her long-term fate. And also very difficult in a family having a person with a severe mental illness. So living at home is just about impossible. So um, 
uh, we made a huge effort. Uh, our local church, a Catholic church near the jam factory in South Yarra gave us a disused convent and then the Victorian government, Richard Wynne, um, the Labor planning minister gave us money for a building, about four million, and it's got 14 apartments and each person there has permanent, serious, long-term mental illness uh, and we provide accommodation, care and support for them. These days, the staffing costs are met through the NDIS, which is good. There's a whole story about mental illness and NDIS, but in this case it covers the extreme cases. Um, and that has worked very well. It dramatically improved the lives of my daughter, but the others. And we've now got uh, a couple more functioning and five more to be built in the next year or two because it's a big gap in the mental health system. At the beginning, if you go to a GP or something for primary, it's sort of okay. I could tell you why it's not, but it's sort of okay. You go to a GP and maybe a psychologist, particularly if it's not a very severe mental illness. At the other end, we've got hospitals, which are not too bad, except they're under more and more pressure. I used to say they're okay, but I'm on the Royal Commission in Melbourne into it, and we're hearing more and more stories that, see, the hospital waiting, the hospital admission in Germany, I was speaking to someone in Germany, if you go in, you stay in at least three weeks, that's the average. It used to be 14 days in Victoria, it's now down to eight days. Maybe one of those saved days is due to more efficiency. But it's just the pressure on them from trying to, people getting in. So where do they go after it? There's nowhere to go. Uh, and if they just go and sleep under a bridge the night after they're treated, they'll be back in. Huge relapse rates. Mm. So you need something that meets the needs of people in the middle, uh, the more substantial problems. You need a step-down set of facilities. Mm. There's very, very little there at all. And that's the biggest weakness. Um, also, the other big problem is there's not a lot done on <coughs> early intervention and prevention. Uh, we spent all our money on what happens to people when they fall into the bottom of the cliff. We could do more on prevention and early intervention. You have a, a lot in the book about the productivity cost to the community of mental illness, but I'm also interested in your experience dealing not only with Isabella, but with a whole range of people with mental illness through your role on the, on the Commission. Um, what is it that we as citizens should bear in mind when we're personally interacting with someone with a mental illness? Uh, well, uh, sympathy, patience, tolerance when you're talking to them. I'm afraid that's, I mean, that's, that's it. Um, they do have wacky ideas that can be tiring, very obsessive, uh, and uh, sometimes it's not a, necessarily a pleasant experience either, uh, or it can be sort of slightly peevish uh, uh, on their, their part. So that's one thing. But that reminds me, so there's a bigger point, community attitudes. Uh, there has been some improvement in community attitudes, particularly with um, regard to depression. It's almost fashionable now, say, I had a mental health problem, I was depressed. 
and the community's understanding that better, not schizophrenia. Mm. Um, and there have been surveys of, um, you know, community attitudes, stigma, discrimination, and it's not improved at the serious end. If anything, it's got worse. And, of course, uh, with the media... Now, the media actually does a lot of good, helpful, educational, positive stories about the challenges of mental illness, including at the extreme end. But from time to time, there's some violence by a person, typically with untreated mental illness, and that story sets back the whole cause. Mm. And it's been one of the main reasons why in many states, I happen to know Victoria, the numbers very well, the prison population has doubled in eight years. These days in Victoria, if you are uh, arrested, you are remanded. You don't get out on bail. And you may have seen that big case in Burke Street of a man out on remand. And there's going to be the coroner's report on that soon. I just But um, most people want to lock them up. So I've been in a lot of prisons. Um, generally not as a prisoner, but uh, I've been in a lot. I've been in a lot lately. And uh, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare data show that over 50% of people in prison have a serious mental illness. Uh, of course, to get off a crime on grounds of mental illness is extremely hard. They've got very tight, narrow rules. So the normal mental illness person just gets chucked into jail. In prison, there's, prisons are not hospitals. They don't look after their mental illness. Furthermore, if you're on a compulsory order, which quite a few people are, it's dropped when you are in prison. Uh, I can see arguments for and against. I wouldn't like prison guards to be able to inject me or, the t or whatever is required. They're not hospitals. But... Uh, the fact is that the prison population has numerous people in it with serious mental illness and if they get really out of hand, it turns out the place they go to, the forensic hospitals, are totally packed and they cannot get in. So prisons have got a lot of people with totally out of control mental illness. Uh, the community is happy to put people in prison. They will not pay for additional prisons, however. Well, from CEOs to prisoners, we've uh, covered a lot. Uh, please join me in thanking Alan Fells. Thank